This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! Hi, I'm Bethany Van Delft, and we're going to take a walk through the South End. I'm a comedian. I'm a storyteller. I do stand-up, I work for The Moth, um, I have a digital series on PBS, Nova, called Parental Logic, so if you're a new parent with questions, check it out. I host a kids' news podcast on iHeartRadio called The 10 News. If you have kids between 8 and 12 years old and you're trying to figure out how to talk about the Ukraine, check us out. We've got the answers. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Well, Bethany, it's so nice to be taking a walk with you here in the South End. It's so nice to meet you. I'm really grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, yeah, I'm so happy we're walking through the South End. This neighborhood, we, my family moved from New York City to Boston when I was around 12 years old. And I didn't like it. We moved right into um, a bunch of... Racial, racial disharmony going on at the time, and I always, I felt like as soon as I graduate high school, I will move back to New York. And then we, at some point, we were driving through the city, and I saw this neighborhood with Victorian row houses, and Puerto Rican people, and black people, and white people, and gay people, and artists, and it felt so much like New York. I said, if I stay, I will live in this neighborhood. And I indeed did for 20 years. Oh my God, it is a special neighborhood, but it seems like it's evolved over time, right? It's changed so, so, so much. Um, There used to be, we're on Washington Street now, there used to be the Orange Line, used to be elevated and run straight down Washington Street. And when, let's see, I took the train to high school in Copley Square, and when they were doing a... um, like a revamp project on the red line, I took the orange line to school every day. And we would take the train right down Washington Street, Northampton Station, Dover Station, Essex Station. And I remember going past this really old sandstone Victorian building that was abandoned. 
and it definitely looked like the kind of place that bats would be flying around and maybe ghosts. <laughs> and um, I lived in the South End at the time. A couple bought it and developed it and sold the condos off for like a million dollars a piece. Like wow. I could never imagine that happening when, right. when we rode by it on the train. Um, I used to get my hair cut at a barber shop under the L that had been, it's a black owned business, family had owned it for 75 years, there's a chocolate shop there now. There's just so much that's changed yeah. and you know I, know, I know it's progress for some people but I often wonder if a chocolate shop is, is more valuable than a family owned business. So, but it still has the magic, it's the, the buildings are just incredible. I love, I love looking at the buildings here and the buildings in Brooklyn and knowing that these were all built at the same time period and just wondering, um, you know, how did, how did our city and New York City, what was the relationship, what was the back and forth that was happening at that time? Who were the people that were going back and forth? Who were the architects that decided, you know, this neighborhood should look like Williamsburg? Or right. I just love thinking about that. Well, and I certainly, like you, think about the cities now and how the cities are, um, I don't know, they're changing, yes. really, right? And there's certain cities that have really changed in a way that, you know, the decline, people leaving, that type of thing. But I don't sort of feel Boston has been spared of it. Do you agree? That people are leaving? Yeah. or um, I think, I mean, it depends on... When we say people, it depends on who we're saying, who are people, you know. I think there is a huge exodus of people of color from the South then, um, you know, being replaced by people, people with wealth or, you know, people who are upwardly mobile or young, young people um, starting families that have the kind of money it takes to live in this neighborhood now. So I guess it, that's like an important thing is when we say people... Or, you know, I do it all the time, too. We'll say, nobody likes that thing. But the truth is, somebody likes that thing. It's just no one in my experience likes that thing. Or maybe I don't like that thing. So I think that's important. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, I think your point on how, you know, it's so expensive to live here, it does create, you know, just a, a different... Uh, series of opportunities yeah. or less opportunities really for yeah. people to be able to afford it so um, when I think of what's going on with the cities once again um, it just feels like there's been so much um, decay and, and so much that's been let go in cities uh, Chicago's had a tough time obviously mm. um, before this San Francisco has New York has had its challenges, certainly, all before COVID, I think. Yeah. Uh, but Boston seems to, at least for the quality of the city in general, seems to have held strong, I guess, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I think that we've... There are neighborhoods that have seen the same decay. The South End, for sure, was one of those neighborhoods. You know, in the 60s and 70s, um, it was predominantly an African-American neighborhood. And there were... If you go down, like, West Rutland and West Newton, those those buildings were all owned by um, African-American families. A lot, of the, a lot of the men of the family were porters um, on the Amtrak, the, the trains that went back and forth. Um, that was a position that, one of the few positions that African-Americans had 
back then that were stable, like stable jobs um, with, you know, income security. And so a lot of this neighborhood were African-American people who had, who had stable jobs and could own properties. So um, the neighbors took care of their neighborhood pretty much themselves. Like it wasn't the city taking care of the neighborhood. There were several instances where the city wanted to tear down whole blocks of buildings to put an overpass. Um, but the, the neighborhood, the people in the neighborhood fought against it and they kept the, they kept the neighborhood. And so the neighborhood was turned around really by the residents. And once it, once people from outside the neighborhood saw it and thought, this is a great place to live. Then yeah. the city started pouring money into it, yes. you know, right. which is kind of, that's the pattern. That's, that's, you know, Chicago might be going through it now, but the same thing will happen there. And neighborhoods in New York went through it also same time period, 60s and 70s. And what you see now is the same thing. The city is pouring money into it because a different group of people wants to live there and finds yeah. that neighborhood valuable. So I think that, I think as a, as a whole city, we may have, you know, I'm not sure. I know that we, we definitely have neighborhoods who have, that have experienced the same thing as, as right. other cities. I just think it might not be as talked about, maybe. Yeah, maybe. That's right. Maybe that's it. You yeah. Know? Let's talk about your ride down here. First yes! Of all. Oh, my goodness. All right. How so you, crazy. You were taking uh, one of these major car services that begins with a oo. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like schmoober. <laughs> And um, just like everything else in the world, nothing is very easy. So what the heck happened on the way down? <laughs> I mean, that is supposed to be one of the easiest things. Is you click a button and a car comes and picks you up. It's right. supposed to be easy, right? Seems simple. Yes. The driver showed up and... Um, you know, you know. first of all, the rating system is insane, right? The, ra oh, yeah. the rating system. And I was reading a lot about it because I'm trying to figure it out. Is it is it valuable at all? Does it mean anything? And um, the the driver, the driver, rating system the, or the passenger both rating system? both rating systems. Because I don't understand the passenger rating system. I don't either. <laughs> and so I was I was just reading a bunch about it, trying to figure it out. What I learned is it's not it's not always valuable. It's not always invaluable. It's it's like kind of a, a you know crapshoot. Yeah. So the driver that's coming has like a, a 4.7 rating, which I've never seen a rating that low. But I remember reading these articles and thinking, oh, he probably just had one person who disliked him so much. And right. that threw everything off. Right. So that's too bad. And I feel bad for this guy. And we're going to have a great ride. <laughs> and the car pulls up. And um, I'm already running late to meet you. And I'm, I'm a little bit stressed out about it. The car pulls up and I get in. And there's an iPad, like a big, a bigger iPad, on the dashboard showing a news program. Oh, it's, it's, there's TV on the, on the dashboard. And so I got in the car, and I, I waited for a minute, and I said, oh, because I don't know, how do you address that? I know. How do you address that? <laughs> I, I would think anybody just turns That's it off when the passenger one. gets in the car, right? So I said, oh, you're watching TV. And he said, yeah, what's the problem? I said, oh, well, you know, if you're driving, you know, it's probably distracting to watch TV. And he said, no, I don't do them at the same time. I drive, I look at the road, and I watch TV, and then I look at the road. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I would feel more comfortable if you turn the TV off. 
And he said, um, I'm not turning the TV off. Which, I, again, I'm like, what do I do now? I'm late. <laughs> A defiant I'm late. driver. So I'm late, but I also have children. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to get out of the car then. And he said, I don't care. <laughs> like, that was this tone of, I don't care. Jeez. And I went, okay. So I got out of the car. Oh, my God. And um, I did learn from an Uber driver that they do this trick. If anything were to happen like that, or they don't want to take you or something, they wait for you to cancel the ride, yeah. because then you get charged for it. Oh, yeah. So they just wait not to cancel it. So he waited forever to cancel the ride. Oh, wow. And I just, I used Lyft instead. Now, and I got are, another but, car. But there are a lot of people who, you know, unfortunately, and I I have a friend that I tease constantly about this. I'm like, Allie, you can't drive and watch TV uh, at the same time. Now, I don't know if she oh does it God. to the degree that she says she does because she has a long drive from work back home. But I'm like, hello. No, no you can't. This is not right. You listen to podcasts. Yeah. You yeah. listen to Taking a Walk. There That's you what you go. do. Thank you. Yeah, you don't You don't watch TV. I don't know. You un- listen, Allie? You listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Allie. People love you. That's Do right. not watch TV and drive. Awesome. I love it. I love to see what I love about the podcast, uh, you know, platform is you can make direct messages to people that yes. you know are listening. <laughs> you could do that worldwide, right? We uh, at times have a large uh, uh, international audience. I can't figure out why. I love that. <laughs> right? I love it. Right. So when did you first know you were going to be a comedian? What was the moment that you knew? you were going to be a comedian. Oh, boy. I always wanted to be, but I didn't... I I mean, it just wasn't... wasn't at all in my world of possibility. As far as I... As far as I knew, someone like me could not be a comedian. I was debilitatingly shy in school, um, anywhere. I just... If I was called on or you were looking to me to comment or do something... I would get sick to my stomach, and sometimes I would throw up, and sometimes I'd feel like I had to go to the bathroom, or I'd faint, and so there was no chance I was ever going to be a comedian, but my family, we loved comedy. My dad was a huge, my dad is still a huge W.C. Fields, Mae West, Marx Brothers fan, and so we grew up watching a lot of that. My mom was a huge fan of Freddie Prinze, and Richard Pryor, and George Carlin, so we grew up watching them. Yeah. Monty Python, Mel Brooks, like we grew up watching all of that stuff. So, and um, we very unhealthily handled all of our big emotions by being funny. <laughs> we we handled nothing in an, in a mature way. We were a whole family of Prince of Tides, and um, <laughs> it's something I just always I loved. But I just was like, this is for people who don't have this, you know, this shy, this like stage fright handicap. Um, and then I remember the first time my mom let me watch Saturday Night Live. And I was too young to be watching it. But she gave me a lot of conditions. If you do your homework and you do your chores and you listen and you treat your brother and sister well, then you can stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. So I turned into the absolute model child so that I could stay up on Saturdays and watch oh, Saturday wow. Night Live. Oh, wow. That did it? Mm-hmm. Wow. And then when I started working, you know, I started eventually working in the restaurant business and I'd be work on Saturday nights. My mom would record Saturday Night Live for me and my brother and I would watch it um, 
on Sundays after breakfast. And we would memorize like all the sketches. We'd watch them again and again and again. We would memorize all the sketches. Um, and I've watched Saturday Night Live every single season ever since. Oh. My whole entire life. And people will go, ah, oh, well, it's not good anymore. It stopped being good after whatever season. And I'm like, well, the Yankees weren't good the whole entire time either. The Yankees are good for a while. Then pe- players leave, new players come up, the team absolutely sucks. <laughs> well, they gel and they get to know each other and yeah. they learn how to work together and then they become a fantastic team again. So you have to... You have to choose Saturday Night Live like the Yankees. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So what was the first stand-up gig? My first stand-up gig was... Um, so I had one of those, you know, one of those wake-up moments where actually was in therapy. My therapist said, what would you do if you could do anything? And I had been seeing her for like a year at this point, And I had been working in the restaurants for a long, long time. And um, I said, well, I'd open a restaurant, you know, I'd, I'd open a, like a cash cow for something like T. Anthony's by BU or something like that. That would just, you know, make a ton of money. And then my next restaurant would be like more, more ego involved. And then, you know, my, my huge restaurant, she goes, just stop right there. You're only saying that because you work in a restaurant. If you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, oh, like be anybody else. Like, get out of my body and be somebody else and do anything, I'd be on Saturday Night Live for sure. And she said, well, you know, why don't you do that? I said, oh, because you generally have to start in stand-up or sketch, and, you know, you got you to take that, and then you work your way up. And, you know, I've got, like, this really great apartment now and a really nice boyfriend, and if I had to leave for L.A., he'd probably leave, and I'd have to give up my apartment in the South End and blah, blah. She's like, wow, you've already become successful broken up with people, lost apartments, and you've literally never even told a joke. (laughs) Why don't you start there? And I was like, wow, light bulb, why don't I start there? So I took a class at the Boston Center for Adult Education, and um, I lasted two classes before I absolutely panicked and left and never came back. And um, we knew that the final class would be at a comedy club, it would be at the comedy studio in Harvard Square. And um, the final was to do five minutes, do a five-minute set that we've been working on over the ten weeks of the class. Um, so I showed up for two classes, didn't show up for eight classes, and then showed up for the final. And the teacher the teacher is pretty much like, what are you doing here? You, you couldn't even stand up in front of a classroom you know, of, of ten people. How are you going to do this? I'm like, I don't know, but I am going to do it. And I sure enough did it. I got up on stage. Um, I don't know if I bombed or not. I just pretty much blacked out. And then the <laughs> Rick Jenkins, the owner of the comedy studio, said, hey, do you want a few dates? And I said, yeah, I definitely do. And so um, I rode that complete and utter amazement that I did this thing that I always wanted to do for about four years and didn't... I, I just I didn't do what I should have... what you're supposed to do to get good at comedy. I did, I did a set maybe once a month and I tried to write a whole new set every time, like, thinking that was respectful to Rick. Like, hey, thanks for the time. I won't make you listen to the same old garbage. I'm going to write a whole new set, which is absolutely insane. That's not how comedy works. And I did that for a while until it was, like, awful and the most stressful thing, and I, I quit for another four years, maybe. And um, quit? Really? Totally quit. Really? I was like, this is horrible. I hate this. I feel awful. I suck at it. I just... Wow. This is not for me at all. Yeah. And uh, I ended up seeing... 
comedian, the Seinfeld movie. Yes. And Orny Adams was miserable, and Colin Quinn was miserable, and Seinfeld, they're just all talking about this, like, this, like, super painful process that comedians go through. And it, I was like, oh my God, I am a comedian. Right. right. <laughs> Ended up running into Rick, like serendipitously ran into Rick and he said, do you want to try again? And I was like, I do, and oh. I will do it right this time. Wow. And so he gave me a few more dates and I went to all the open mics and I bombed terribly and I cried all the time and I just really, 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 really stuck with it. And um, <laughs> I would say, honestly, the two years before the pandemic is the very first time that I felt real comfortable. Like, I truly am a comedian. I'm a funny comedian. And um, this is, yeah, this is what I do. This is me. But it took that long. And I do remember, um, that's like 18 or so, close to 20 years maybe, you know. I do remember one time, halfway through that, standing outside of Hard Rock Cafe for the Boston Comedy Festival. And I was... You know, we were young comedians and we were complaining about something or other. And I was saying, oh my God, and I did this in my set and I should have said this, but I said it like that and I forgot this word and blah, blah, blah. And going, oh, we're just like, you know, commiserating. And Tony V walked by and he said, um, you just got to keep doing it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, but um, I, you know, I was trying to get this joke and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, how long have you been doing it? And I said, like, four years. And he goes, you, you don't even matter until you've been doing it, like, ten years. <laughs> He's like, you don't even know who you are until you've been doing it ten years. So just keep doing what you're doing. Stop complaining. Do the work. And see what happens when you've been it ten years. And I, of course, have known Tony V the whole time I've been doing comedy. So when I was in it for ten years, I got to say, Tony... You were wrong. Like, it's 10 years and I still don't know who the hell I am. But <laughs> it's coming. I can feel it. I can feel it. I was going to say, and how dare your shrink suggest that you were maladjusted in the world of comedians. I mean, I find that to be the most insulting thing that uh, your shrink could possibly say and be paid for it. So, I mean, literally. But, yeah, it is the pain and suffering. Yeah. Right? Well, in its, it's the hard work. You know, yeah. everything takes really hard work, and that you know, stand up is such a, it's such a personal, lonely thing in a way, because you're creating this thing, and then in order to put it out into the world, you have to stand there and put it out into the world, and then you have to receive whatever reaction to it. Right. So it's, I guess it is not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. But it's so, I don't know, I, I really just love it. I, I didn't love it for quite a period, but the couple years right before the pandemic, I have to say, I just, I just loved it so much. And I remember, you know, someone like Tony V saying, all right, go up, have fun. And I'd be like, who has fun when they do comedy? What a weird thing to say to somebody, right? <laughs> and now I get it. Like, it is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be being up there having fun. And that's what people... That's what people get from you. They get from you that you are having fun, and that is contagious. Even if, you know, I tend to talk about things um, 
as our walk started out. I tend to talk about things that are that are real, that are maybe sometimes difficult to talk about, but I even in comedy I do that. But I do think that's the place where you can have those conversations, you know. If you could bring levity to something that's difficult to talk about, you at least get the conversation started. Right. Where, you know, it's 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 hard for me to start a difficult conversation. I'd rather avoid it, and I'd rather watch cartoons or, or um, you know, a, a show or something. But if, if the topic comes up with levity, if you can bring the topic up in a way that suggests that it is not the end of the world if we have this conversation, and good things might come of it, then I think it's, it's really helpful. It's helpful to just move things along and to progress, so is one of the most frustrating things as a comedian where someone says, Hey, Bethany, I know you're a comedian. Say something funny. Yes, I, I love that. It's not frustrating, it's just hilarious, you know, because this might be a doctor saying that, Yeah. right? And I'll be like, well, you know, check my liver and I'll trade you for a joke or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. An architect saying it, build me a house and I'll tell you a joke. Right. But it isn't, people, you're right, people don't see it as, this is my job and I'm not here doing my job with you. So it's maybe, you know, a little inappropriate to ask for it. Steve Sweeney told me that on a walk. He basically was like, you know, I absolutely, that's one of the things I hate the most when someone <laughs> is like, hey, you're funny. Sweeney, you're funny. And it just drives them crazy, right? But So is Michael Che right in any way when he talks about Boston in terms of racism? It is his experience, so that's what I'll say. You know, it, um, he is right if he feels that's his experience. I mean, and we, we both know, standing here, yeah, Boston has a lot of problems with racism. I don't know what he experienced at that time. I do know he keeps coming back. And I do know that, you know, there's lots of racism um, in really everywhere all across our beautiful country it's it's a problem that we're reckoning with right now so yeah i guess did i did i skirt around that well you did enough? it very well did I skirt and, and, but that? yet we don't know what he experienced or what he still experiences yeah right? we have no idea he does come back because he's a comedian he's in business yeah in, and the crowd loves him he crowd has a lot him. of fans here right. he's huge i've opened for him to sold out sold out you know I've opened for him at Laugh yeah. all shows are sold out I've opened for him at the Wilbur it's always sold out so he loves the fans but again it's a tough conversation people don't want to believe negative things about the place they're from but yeah Boston has a, a long history with racism and um, it's still here I believe we're working on it I believe electing a mayor who is a woman who is Asian is a huge step. It's, um, it shows that the city does want to change and be different and move forward. So I think that's a, that's a great thing. Whether, whether everyone agrees with all of her politics or um, all of her programs, I think everyone can agree that it is a sign of progress. Yep. It's an incredible sign of progress. Yep. So. so Everyone is going to be talking forever uh, about, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. Well, it's supposed to be timely, remember? Okay, but they're going to be talking forever about Chris Rock and Will Smith. So, uh, any reflections from you on this? 
I am. I'm like. I am. You the knew child. what I was going to say, I right? Totally did. I totally did. <laughs> I want to say I'm the child of old activists. Okay, my my parents have been. They were activists when we were born. And when I saw that, my first reaction was, this is all anyone is going to talk about while Ukraine is getting obliterated. Right. Like, no one's going to, everyone's going to forget that right. there is a horrible war happening and our earth is melting because these two couldn't get their lives together. That's really, truly what I thought. And do I, I don't have... I don't have an important opinion about it either way. I'm more concerned with that will take over the news cycle for a week and a half while other stuff is happening. And that this is this is literally the problem with where human is, humans are on Earth at this time. Is that something like that could truly bump out the humanitarian crisis happening in Europe right now and the fact that our planet's about to burst into flames. Right. I mean, I saw the day before the slap, I saw um, I saw an article that Antarctica was 90 degrees hotter than it's ever been in the history of taking temperatures. Like, what's more important? That well, Will Smith got up in a silly, made-up ceremony and slapped a guy who he felt disrespected his wife or that... Antarctica is 90 degrees hotter than it's ever been in the whole world. Right. Like, that's that's kind of more important. So, But news cycles, I mean, you, you obviously are fascinated by the news. Mm-hmm. You pay attention to the news. And the way the news cycles work is, uh, we know, they're only trying to get ratings, obviously. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, when we all of a sudden name a storm something called a bombo cyclone yeah. when nobody ever heard of that ever that tells you everything thing. right yeah. it's, like, it's like naming a new neighborhood right. like when the realtors want you to move to this neighborhood that people are like i don't know is that a little bit dangerous no it's so wise it's not dangerous right. move on in right bomb cyclone is really exciting it's it the says packaging it, it, of everything yeah it does not sound like um the earth is dying it sounds like oh bomb cyclone that's pretty cool i know it's so weird let's all get our bomb cyclone gear and get our ski poles and i don't know i know so where do you get your news um i get all of my news from the daily show and we can update (laughs) right i i toggle i toggle yeah i you know i check NPR, I check BBC, I check New York Times, I always, I check Fox, I just check, I check everything to see what everybody is saying. Yeah. I try to find, I try to find the source that has the most facts in it, and the less, the least amount of um, opinion or slant. It's really interesting. I always thought, being a New Yorker and all, or a former New Yorker, I always thought the New York Times is true. That's the real news, right? Um, But during the pandemic that was what I followed I just I didn't read anything else except for BBC and, and um, New York Times during the pandemic I realized that I was far more like anxious and depressed a year into it reading the New York Times than than any other any other thing and it was, there was definitely kind of like a doom slant on everything. So even if something positive happened, 
there was this kind of yeah, I mean, numbers are going down, but they're probably going to go right back up. And I was like, that's right, they probably are. Everything is for naught. <laughs> I didn't notice it until um, I had to give myself a break, and I just turned everything off for like two weeks. And I felt so much better. Then I started reading The Times again, and I started feeling bad again. And I was like, Surely the New York Times can't be making me feel bad. It just must be the state of news. And no, there really was kind of this this like gloomy slant to it. Yep. Um, just like the, the Fox News has like this very sensationalized like conspiracy theory slant to it. There was I could find no news that didn't have some kind of slant. You know, yep. I read the Guardian, but there's definitely a, a a leftist slant, which I don't dislike, but where is the news that is purely giving you facts? I think there was a time in my lifetime that the news did that. I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I believe the so. The 70s, yeah. I feel like, or, the, or maybe some of the 80s, where the news was the actual news that was happening. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure we have that anymore. Not even, not even the times, not even really anything. Well, you mentioned your parents and activism. And one of the unique things about you is your uh, activism on behalf of your daughter, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the Down syndrome, you know, aspect of her life. So please talk about how important that is, what we should know about the challenges that uh, your daughter faces, and how the world can be more insightful and be helpful. Well, the biggest challenge that my daughter faces is, um, you know, people's perception of her. That, that's the biggest challenge. She's, she can do everything. And anything she can't do today, she will end up doing. It's, that, it's the limitations that people put on her because of this diagnosis, you know. Um, and it, again, it, it really is part of the same thing that it's part of racism and sexism and homophobia. And this, this is, you know, ableism. It's just people attaching limits or values to someone because of one aspect of their being you know um a person with down syndrome almost almost all people with down syndrome do all the same things that we all do sometimes it takes them a little bit longer um but it's the opportunity is there and it's available to people with down syndrome just just like all people I think she faces the same limitation as, say, women faced at a time, or, um, you know, black people, Asian people. It just, it's really important to, first of all, just be inclusive. If that's your practice, if that's your practice, you're inclusive first, you ask questions later, that will benefit everybody. If you see somebody who is alive, they're worthy, they're valuable, they deserve the same amount of space and respect and rights that we have everybody does so I believe being you know having a fully inclusive mindset is the first thing because that really covers everybody that covers a person with Down syndrome it covers a gay person it covers it covers a black person it covers um, you know a person in a wheelchair it covers everybody if, if your mindset is one of full inclusion um, and then I guess after that, if you have a question about someone, for example, someone with Down syndrome, ask the question. Just ask a question, you know. I had, 
I had a lot of um, rough experiences of people staring at my daughter when we were out and about or people saying things like, oh, there's one of them at my church. They're just so happy all the time. And just saying these things that were not true, first of all, but also not helpful. Like, rather than say that, ask a question. You know? Right. Asking the question has more sensitivity than saying stupid things. And it has it has information, right. you know? Right. Um, my daughter is very sassy, and she has lots of emotions. Um, she's a Scorpio. So <laughs> <laughs> How old is she? She's 10 years old. Um, she's definitely not happy all the time, but who, who on earth is happy all the time? Right. No one's happy all the time. Neither are people with Down syndrome. Right. Neither, I mean, all black people can't dance. All Asian people can't do math. Like, it's just... It's these, um, you know, these, I can't think of the word, but. Just a preconceived notion. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Or this, like, all-inclusive, all people do this, all people like this do this. They're just, it's really, it's not true. I think if we all took one minute to think about it, we all know that none of those statements are true. It's really important to get to know people, get to know Get to know the person, you know. If you've met one person with Down syndrome, you've met one person with Down syndrome. Right. Just like if you've met one white person, you've met one white person. And if you've met one black person, you've met one black person. We have to really, that has to be, that has to be our mindset for us to make progress, I think. Just as, as a species, right. I think, you know. Um are there nonprofits that are important to you that you want to talk about, especially knowing nonprofits have been really put through the mill in the last couple of years with the pandemic? I support the Mass Down Syndrome Congress. Um, they're an organization that supports um, people with Down Syndrome and families of people with Down Syndrome. They have a wonderful annual conference every year. You can go as a family member of someone with Down syndrome, someone with Down syndrome, or just a curious person, educator, you know, an educator or a neighbor or anything. And you can learn so, 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 so much. And you can meet people. You meet lots of people with Down syndrome and lots of families um, supporting people with Down syndrome. The Federation for Children with Special Needs, um, I support. They, their parent-led group, that began sitting around at someone's table in a kitchen, um, just a few families talking about how they can support their children to have all the opportunity that typically developing children have. And they've, they've become this incredibly powerful resource for families of people with special needs. Um, they have lots and lots of workshops. I've taken parent advocacy training workshops with them. They have advocacy training for um, family members of people with medical com- medically complex needs. Really anything, anything that, any way you want to support someone with special needs or someone in special education or something like that, they're a great place to turn to. Um, I support the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network, which is a group, again, all of these all of these groups started with families sitting around a table figuring out ways to support our loved ones. This group started um, with a few moms on Facebook who had babies with Down Syndrome, and the way the diagnosis was given to them was just so hopeless, you know? 
Um, and so they came together to figure out how can this diagnosis be given in a factual way, in a way that doesn't um, try to guide you to make one decision or another, but just offers facts and uh, connects you right away with families and resources for you to get support and more information. Because really, you know, it, it was different by the time Lulu was born, but still not I ideal. But there used to be a time when people would say, we have terrible news, your child has Down syndrome. We recommend that you put your child in an asylum because they're going to ruin your family's life. Like, that's outrageous, absolutely outrageous. So we've come a long way since then. But there's still, it still could be better. There still could be more information given at the time of the diagnosis. Um, it could just be, it could really be, it's different than having blue eyes or brown eyes, but it really could be, the news could be delivered that easily, you know. Yep. Your child has blue eyes, your child has Down syndrome. These are, these are ways that you, we don't know, it means something different for every single person. But here are some resources to jump into right away. And here are a lot of people who have been on this journey longer than you who are there to support you. That's, that's like the best way you can, you can deliver a diagnosis like that. Well put. Very well put. So a year from now, what do you want to have happened in your career? Oh, wow. Um, a year from now, I would love to be hosting an amazing NPR game show. Like some of my favorite game shows, Ask Me Another, and uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I would love to be working on my second album. I have someone working with me on a children's book, and I would love to find find it. I don't, I don't know where it is yet. It's in me, but I would love to find it. Um, not necessarily have it out, but just find it. I'd love to be making a nice income, bringing joy, being funny, being informative and just um, helping people feel good, even with the difficult things. Well, I feel <laughs> good talking to you. You have such a heart and such a great energy, and I appreciate you taking a walk with me, and I wish you uh, well, because I know it's going to be uh, a continued great journey. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 